This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. After spending 16 years in the military, including a decade in the SEAL teams, Eric Davis's family became more than accustomed to him being away on deployments and secret missions that would obscure his whereabouts for months. When he left the SEAL teams in 2008, he felt things in his family could only get better now that he wouldn't be gone for months on end. His assumption was that quality time would happen now that he was guaranteed more quantity time. As he points out in his new book, though, he couldn't have been more wrong. The closer he was to home, the further he got from his family, especially his son. As a SEAL, Eric had learned to innovate and push boundaries, which allowed him to function at levels beyond what was expected or comfortable or ordinary or even imaginable. And he knew that as a father, he needed to do the same thing with his son. Meeting extreme with extreme was the only answer. Using a unique bend of discipline, leadership, adventure, and grace, Eric and his SEAL brothers are going to teach us today in this part of today's show about how we can connect and reconnect with our sons and learn how to raise real men, the Navy SEAL way. I'm Armin Brutt. We'll start talking about the SEAL approach to parenting, in particular how they take the lessons that they learned in training and apply it to raising their sons when Positive Parenting continues right after this. I'm in almost every school bus and classroom. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me. We are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brod, and my guest for this part of today's show is Eric Davis, who's the author of Raising Men, Lessons Navy SEALs Learned from Their Training and Taught to Their Sons. Eric, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me, Armin. Glad to be here. Well, let's start off with a little bit. First of all, thank you for the service that you have provided for so many years with the, with the SEALs and, and the, the rest of the Navy. Uh, how long were you in, and what did you do? I was in the Navy for a grand total of 16 years. Uh, Ten of those years were spent as a SEAL. Five of those years were spent as a SEAL sniper instructor, which is kind of an odd thing. I spent a long time uh, in the instructor role. And then before that, I was what was called a Navy corpsman or a medic. And I actually spent a couple years working with the Marine Reconnaissance Units um, prior to going to SEAL training, which is their version of special operations. That's kind of the quick snapshot of my career. Okay. I'm just kind of curious about this. Do, do Navy SEALs get to retire after fewer than 20 years? Uh, no, that's actually kind of a sore spot for me. So <laughs> they'll, they'll let other people in other ratings uh, retire early sometimes, or those who did not make rank uh, retire er- early sometimes, typically not of the SEALs because it's such a high demand. They have such a hard time keeping people in there. Uh, so, you know, from a capitalistic uh, viewpoint, it makes sense. They want to retain guys. Uh, but from kind of that aspect of fairness, it's a little unfair that uh, we don't get the same um, perks yeah. and benefits as other people. But, you know, life's not fair, and that's how it goes. Right. I mean, considering that you guys are probably packing more into a, 
a career than most people as far as the amount of action that you're seeing and the kinds of things that you're doing. You'd think you ought to be able to get out a couple of years early and, and still have it count, but whatever. That's, you can't argue with the government. So, <laughs> Yeah, at least not to get anywhere. <laughs> you yeah. can do it. You're just not going to get very far. Right, that's true. So let's talk about the the training part of things. So you were a Navy corpsman before, and then you went to the SEALs. So what was what was that like, and did you have kids at that time? I did. I had uh, kids pretty much my whole career. I got married very young and had kids uh, very young as well. Uh, it was just always in my nature. I always knew I wanted family, so I did not hesitate. And, uh, you know, being kind of a typical mer- uh, you know, military family, that's not too uncommon there because you have the resources for it. Um, but, yes, I had kids throughout all of my training. Um, so I was already a hospital corpsman, a medic, and then I had my first two kids, and then I went into Marine Recon training um, and then through SEAL training with two kids the whole time. And were you thinking as you're going through all this training, particularly the, the grueling, horrible part of it, huh, I, I wonder if this will apply to parenting? <laughs> um, you know, actually I was because I'd actually been to SEAL training so my first term in the, the Navy, I went to SEAL training right at the end of my term. I uh, decided to quit. Uh, I quit SEAL training and got out of the Navy because I thought it would be better uh, for my family to be home, um, to be around. But as soon as I did it, it was just a few months later, I started to, I wouldn't say regret, but I just started to think about SEAL training a whole bunch. Um, it was just, it just entered my dreams even. And I remember one day thinking, man, I... I basically did my first act, big act as a father, was giving up on a dream. Um, So I thought that's not going to work as an example for my kids. So I went back into SEAL training to make it uh, very much with the idea that it would be setting a good example for them, and I thought that was very important. Um, And then from there, the entire time in training, I would think about them daily while I was in training. And I used to always think, okay, what would I do? How would I act if I knew my kids? We're sitting on that sand burn or sitting in the water watching me. So it really drove a lot of what I did as far as training goes. That's a really fascinating way of looking at it. I, I think that probably not that many people would, would even, well, first of all, they wouldn't go through the training at all. But just to have the idea of, huh, I wonder what the kids would think is, uh, is pretty, pretty interesting. And when did you begin to apply these lessons? Oh, right away. As soon as I was in training, um, you know, I'd come home. Uh, we lived uh, up in Orange County, and I would commute down to Coronado because um, I wanted them to be where they were used to being. And then I also thought it would be important if I was focusing, you know, Sunday through Friday just on training alone. But when I would come home on the weekends, um, you know, it started to permeate my every bit of my daily life from being active with them to being disciplined uh, just to being always present with them, always being in the moment, giving it all, giving it my all every step of the way. So it was then, I, it was really then when I started, when I felt tired or weak and I didn't want to do something in the moment I started thinking about, okay, what if they were watching me? Um, that's when the training started to apply. It's when I first got the idea that my life as an example was going to be one of the most important things for them. Hmm. That's wonderful. All right. So you talked a little bit about the whole idea of not giving up on a dream, which is, is a fantastic lesson to be teaching kids. Um, do you think that it's not not only just the dream part of it, but also about finishing a task that you start? You don't quit halfway? Yeah, um, yes, and, yes and no. So uh, absolutely, see something through. Um, you know, I think any father, anybody who's been around for a while, 
would um, agree that they never regretted anything that they stuck with. You know, for the most part, things that we stick with, we're always glad that we did. I do believe there are situations, there are commitments we get into that we can realize, hey, okay, I'm inside of this commitment, but it's really not going to take care of myself and my family in the long term. So I think there is some space for that. But I definitely do think um, showing them to see something through is an important thing. And kind of what would overarch all of that is this idea of living a good life, living the life that you want to live so that you can teach them to do the same. That, that to me, trumped everything. So it was completing things, yes, but it was also following the dreams and living a good life so I can show them how to do it. So one of the big lessons, building a team. Uh, that's the, one of the first lessons that you start off with that we didn't, you didn't actually start off with the one that we'd just been talking about, but it was such a cool one. I wanted to throw that in there. But the building a team part, that such a, a, a good lesson for kids and for everybody else that, for the most part, you just can't do everything on your own. No, you can't. That's a, you know, one of the things that when I kind of, you know, why I wanted to start the book with, you know, raising men. I have three daughters, one boy, and, and there's a reason I wanted to start with the men because I think we're more or less in trouble as a whole. Um, you know, masculinity is, uh, you know, the definition of masculinity is the popular interpretation of how a man should act, and I think that's a little bit disrupted right now. Um, one of the things that I think is get confused inside of masculinity is a lot of men think they need to do things on their own. Um, or they think it's masculine to do something on their own, when really we don't do anything our own. The most power we can have is by having team around us, having good people around us. Now, for the kids, you know, our behavior, how we act, for the most part, is the environment we've grown up in, and the people around us are who produce that environment. So we all need help. We all need to produce very powerful teams, and, and I guess maybe more importantly is we all have to produce teams around us that produce a positive outcome, that produce positive behaviors in us. So, yes, we absolutely need a powerful team around us because we just can't do this by ourselves, especially nowadays. It's getting more complex, more competitive, and we have to have good people around us. Well, that's one of the, the big skills now that employers are looking for, and it's something that I think a lot of schools are not really emphasizing enough is, is the collaborative part of doing pretty much anything, not just not just your daily life, but your work life as well, that you've got to build teams, you've got to work with other people, you've got to cooperate, you have to figure out which strengths various people have so that you can emphasize those and build the strongest team. It's uh, It's not easy. No, no, it's not easy, and it's not obvious. It's not part of cultural common sense. You know, one of my daughters, if she struggles in math, anytime my kids struggle in anything in school or in life, that's one of the first things we do, whether it's bigger problems with the older kids and we go to a counselor or a professional to get help, or it's struggling with homework um, and our math problems, we bring in a tutor. And I always want to show my kids, like, hey, there is help available. Do not try to do this thing on your own. It, it's just you're never going to be able to keep up. So it's critical to not only living a good life, but really it's critical to survive nowadays. Well, let's talk about leading from the front as well, that a lot of people will have great ideas and they'll say things and say, oh, you really ought to be doing this, you really ought to be doing that. But you, know, you mentioned as you were going through the training about how the life that you're leading, the example that you're setting, um, but you can't set the example or be a leader if you're telling people what to do and you're sitting back behind them watching them. Yeah, absolutely, and I don't. I don't think that's been any more true than it is today. Um, I literally just met with my oldest daughter. She's 23, and um, her mom this afternoon, and we were just talking about life and what she's doing and what she's up to. And 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 the key, really, what the conversation came down to, is that idea 
that I'm working to get out ahead so that I can help her navigate all these things in life, you know, whether it's career or relationships or anything like that. Um, and Lead from the Front's been my favorite chapter so far, especially as I've been doing some of the interviews and talking about it. Just too many guys have been out there saying, hey, I'm just going to sacrifice and just make money for my family, or I'm just going to sacrifice and not make money and just try to be with my family um, and just spend tons of time with them. But the thing is, if we're miserable or if we're not having life work out, how are we going to show them how to do that? And especially in today's like complex, highly competitive, knowledge-based economy, there's so much stuff going on that we really got to get out there ahead of them so we can come back and say, hey, I tried these different things. Here's what I found worked. And it might not be the only thing they can do, but at least we can show them that we've been there, done that, and they can inspire to be like us. And, and that's another big thing, too. Like parents say, how do I get my kids to respect me? How do I inspire them? And I always tell them, well, be respectable and be inspirational. Do something that they want to do, that they want to get to, and that's going to have them help you, uh, have them want to follow you. I'm talking with Eric Davis, who's the author of Raising Men, Lessons Navy Seals Learned from Their Training and Taught to Their Sons. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will pick right up where we left off and keep on talking to Eric Davis. I'm Armin Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. I walk and you drive. So let's make a deal. I'll watch for you and cross the street safely. You watch for me and stop. Think of the impact we can make. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, talking with Eric Davis, who's the author of Raising Men, Lessons Navy SEALs Learned from Their Training and Taught to Their Sons. Eric, so let's let's pick up a little bit on some of the other lessons. I think these are these are all so great and I think counter not not exactly counterintuitive, but I think they're not the kinds of things that people generally expect from an author who's been in the military. You you kind of would expect a much more regimented thing and you're you're much more thoughtful. Anyway, you know what I'm saying. The, 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 the advice is terrific. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And, you know, uh, I think that military background, there's value there. You know, we learn discipline and leadership, and uh, uh, not that it's limited there, but I think military vets, that's what they're known for. Um, I think something unique about my background is I had an opportunity to study with some very unique and effective business people when I left the SEAL teams. Um, and I've been an entrepreneur and or a writer since 2008. So um, it's my hope and my desire to bring uh, forth exactly what you just said. I think people have a certain idea when a vet comes on or a military guy, and especially a SEAL, um, but I think you'll find as we keep coming out of the military and entering the workforce, we're going to be more organized around being effective than kind of being how we were when we were in the military. So thank you for that. I'm glad to hear that it's a little bit contrarian. Well, I, I get that as well. I mean, I, I'm a writer and have, have written, I don't know, 30-something books at this point, including a whole series on fatherhood. And when I mention to people I was in the Marine Corps, they just kind of look at me and think, wait, that's not possible. Marines are illiterate or something. You know, wait, <laughs> I'm sorry. <Yeah. laughs> really? Uh, I, 
I'm, not anymore. Not, yeah. not anymore. No. Yeah, the world's changed. Warfare's changed. It's, yeah. it's, I, I, you know, Renaissance men is what they call us now, and and it's true. Art, engineering, philosophy. You know, it's it's different. You got to do it. So yep. l- let's talk about. Uh, don't be right. Be effective. What do you mean by that exactly? Yeah, there's so many. You know, I, so I think the best example there is, un, and unfortunately, my first marriage didn't work out, and I went through a divorce. And if I am anything inside of the parenting or family world that I can point to and say that I did a really good job in, and I didn't do it by myself, but my divorce has got to be one of my proudest things, not getting the divorce, but the relationship I have with my ex-wife, the, the mother of my children. I, I, I just met with her this afternoon. I love her dearly. Um, I've coached soccer with her husband years ago. We've caught you know two multiple seasons of our kids together on a team, and that's been the best example uh, about not being right but being effective. There's so many relationships that just go, get torpedoed because we are right. We do have an honest gripe about our spouse, or, or she's got one about us, and, and it's right. We did something wrong. We upset each other. We were mean. We were unthoughtful. Uh, we're not cooperating, whatever it is. But not being right, being effective, means that we're mission-focused. So we're focused on raising healthy, ha- ha- or healthy, happy, well-adjusted children. And that trumps everything, every tactic, every strategy, everything we do to one another. Um, and that's really been the core as it applies to parenting. And it's something I learned actually with when I was working with the Marines. Um, I was in Marine Reconnaissance, and I remember a colonel said, do you know why we don't like to use SEALs? And, he, and I said, no, sir, tell me. And he said, because you guys don't ever follow the plan. And I thought, oh, that, that's true. We don't typically follow the plan. That, that's how we would think of being right, um, but we're always working to be effective. Um, so we're known for being a little more dynamic, a little bit more out of the box. And I find that that applies in relationships. It applies at work. It applies everywhere. It's kind of like it's not about things being fair. It's about getting things done. Well, how do you express that to kids, though, and how do you get them to adopt that particular mindset? Oh, I'll let you know when I find out. But so I, I, I'm where I work on that all the time, and I, you know, and the answer is in my kind of the humor there uh, through consistency. I, my son, who's 20 years old now. I can remember him coming home all of the time explaining to me how stupid his teachers were, that they're not fair with the homework, that, that he already did something, or that he shouldn't have to read this book, or, or something like that. And really, it's the constant, consistent conversations with him, like, son, I understand what you're saying. Maybe the homework's not the most potent thing you can be doing, but it's part of what you're trying to get done. You're trying to graduate high school. You're trying to get good grades so you can go to college, so you can move into a career. You know, I'm putting it in the big context, the big picture. So really consistency, and that applies to all parenting, right? Consistency sure. is key. Yeah. Um, but, but consistency in that matter has been one of the biggest things because, you know, from a 20-year-old to a, a 3-year-old, they're going to continuously kind of whine or gripe about how things aren't necessarily fair or how things aren't going their way. And it's just always been like us to pull up alongside of and be like, I understand the mm-hmm. world doesn't organize around you. That's not how that works. Things like this are going to happen. You've got to be focused on where you're trying to go, where you're trying to get to. And that's going to mean sometimes you're just going to bite the bullet and do something because you need to just get it done. Now, doesn't that risk a little bit falling into the trap of the ends justify the means? Which sometimes they do, but you don't want to have that as a life lesson necessarily. Uh, 
uh, ooh, yeah, I'd have to dig into that one a little bit more. You, uh, you, are you saying the blanket statement that uh, do whatever it takes to justify the end state, even if whatever it takes is like not necessarily uh, good? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you well, know, you, you're going to end up doing that in a lot of cases, but I think you also have to think about what you're doing and the effect that that could possibly have on other people, and sometimes the goal may need to be changed. Oh, I agree. You know, I think the best I've ever heard it is the and and but conversation. So, you know, I need to do this, and, and people say, okay, i got to get this thing done, but this person's in my way, but that means I'm going to hurt somebody or have to take something from somebody or whatever the negative effect is with other others. And I think you just switch that word to and, okay, I need to get these things handled. I need to care for myself, my situation, wherever I'm trying to go. And I need to make sure the people around me and are involved win also. And so I agree with you. I think that ends justifying the means. Uh, I have to think deeper about it, but I don't know if that ever works. I think the end always needs to include the means. You got to take other back to the having a good team around you, right? We got to take other people with us. We can't crush or hurt people or burn these bridges as we go. We got to take it all with us, and that's what makes it complex. That's what makes it difficult. That's what makes it a challenge. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting thing, especially when you're coming from a military training, and I would imagine particularly the SEAL training, where you are doing things that people generally don't want to hear about, and that but that's the mission. That's what you got to do. Yeah, and, and, you know, being in that situation, you know, somebody's coaching all that, and it is our job to comply and execute. Um, but, you know, that's when we're enlisted or in the military and in that situation. But now I think it's our job for guys like yourself and myself, veterans, um, especially with the voice, um, to start helping people understand that um, we don't necessarily always take actions that's ultimately good for the whole. Um, and I think that's important. Um, not to be too short-sighted, I guess, that we got to look forward and think about everybody. Yeah. And I just remember the, you know, very, at various points in my Marine Corps training that, you know, the, the senior people would say when they felt that there was some sort of rumbling or grumbling going on, you know, you guys beg for this. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no draft right now. This is a volunteer military. And, you know, so quit complaining. You're here because you want to be here. And that that's different as a, you know, than if you're trying to apply for college or a job or something like that when when you have much more in the way of options and choices. Yeah, absolutely. We did sign up, and it, you're right, it's all voluntary. And SEAL training, being a SEAL, you volunteer every single day. It's always an option to leave. Um, so it is a different perspective. So let me just ask you one more here, which I think there's so many of the, that we didn't get to, so people are going to have to pick up the book to get to the rest of them. But respect to fight. The, the idea of kind of what you just said about you, know, you have a choice between getting out or staying in, um, you know, making sure that you're continuing to move forward and challenging yourself. Talk about that. Yeah, so, well, um, respect to the fight, I think it's a lot. That particular chapter is a lot about organizing around, you know, threats and, uh, again, looking at that big picture um, moving forward and continuing, uh, you know, to improve yourself, I think more like the only easy day is yesterday concept. Those, the, the, you know, the, here's the thing with principles and fundamentals, they always kind of overlap and work with each other. Um, but whether you look at, you know, your career, your school as a fight to the finish, or um, you're looking at uh, the long game as far as what you're trying to produce and who you're trying to be, uh, the world is no longer set up where you can go to school and get a job and work for 30 years and grab your pension and retire. Uh, so we need to organize around everything as it's a life or death situation so that 
our mind could be set in a way where we know that we need to constantly be improving, uh, meaning that it's a knowledge-based economy, right? The, we're now compensated by our ability to invent and design and, and produce new offers in the marketplace. And for us to sit back on our haunches and not continuously move forward is just not going to work anymore. So the only easy day is yesterday is what we mean by that is that we earn our tried in every single day. We never rest on our past accomplishments. We always prove ourselves again and again and again. And that's why I think you'll see, I just read an article today about Silicon Valley wanting to hire more like Rangers and Navy SEALs and people like that because we do have that kind of dynamic nature about us where we're always trying to move forward and we never rest on what we've already produced. And I think that's an important lesson, especially for kids, yeah. especially yeah. nowadays with kind of the millennials where they're kind of waiting for companies to pander to them and set them <laughs> up so that they can feel like they have a purpose. But the thing is, that will never work. It's working for a little bit because companies need to get the bodies in there, but never can a company employ somebody who's going to cost them more than they make. It's like eating snow to hydrate. So that's what it's all about. It's all about improving and be producing sure. more and more value. Eric Davis is the author of Raising Men, Lessons Navy SEALs Learned from Their Training and Taught to Their Sons. And the website is ericdavis215.com. Is that right? Yep, you got it. Eric, thanks so much. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. I want to get to today's Mr. Dad question right away because it is an incredibly important topic. Dear Mr. Dad, this may sound dramatic, but I'm hoping you can help save my mom's life. She's constantly on her phone, talking or texting while she's driving. I'm only 13, and I've tried telling her to stop, but she says she has it under control and says I should be quiet. She's cut out some of your columns and stuck them on our refrigerator, so I know she respects your opinion. I can't get through to her, though. Will you help? Unfortunately, your mom is far from alone in using her phone while she's behind the wheel. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration estimates that at any given moment, 9% of all drivers are either on a call or texting. That may not sound like much until you consider that distracted driving, which most often involves a cell phone, causes nearly 1.3 million car crashes, killing close to 5,000 Americans and injuring more than 400,000 every year. That makes distracted driving nearly as dangerous as alcohol and speeding. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that's the CDC, there are three types of distraction. Visual, which is taking your eyes off the road. Manual, which is taking your hands off the wheel. And cognitive, which is taking your mind off your driving. Let's start with texting, since it involves all three. Although we tend to think of texting as a teen thing, 41% of teens say they've seen a parent read or send a text or email, according to a recent study by AAA. In that same study, 36.1% of drivers admit that they've read a text or email within the past 30 days, and 27.1% say they've typed one. 
I double those figures really to account for all the liars out there. What's worse, 84.4% of drivers believe that texting or emailing while driving is completely unacceptable. And they're right. According to the NHTSA, someone who's texting while driving is 23 times more likely to crash than someone who's not. Because texting and driving is clearly a danger, 46 states have outlawed it. But as strange as it sounds, texting behind the wheel is nowhere near as big a problem as making calls while driving. Although if you think about it, it makes sense. Phone calls take a lot longer than texts. So of those 1.3 million crashes, only 160,000 involve texting, while 1.1 million involve talking on the phone. 14 states have outlawed talking on handheld devices while driving. That gives the very false impression that hands-free calls are safer. While it's true that they eliminate two of the risk factors, taking your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road, the whole taking your mind off your driving thing is still incredibly dangerous. In fact, hands-free devices offer no safety benefit, according to the National Safety Council. Drivers using cell phones, whether handheld or hands-free, are four times more likely than other drivers to get into a serious crash. How's that possible? Well, the University of Utah neuroscientist David Strayer found that drivers using cell phones, again, handheld or hands-free, experience what he called inattention blindness, meaning that they're so distracted and their reaction times are slowed down so much that they look at, but don't actually see, half the information in their driving environment. As a result, they miss exits, run red lights, and stop signs, and when they finally do notice something, it's often too late to break or steer away. I'll talk about teen distracted driving and some excellent resources in a future column. In the meantime, if your mom needs any more convincing on the science behind all of this, buy her a copy of Matt Richtel's excellent book, A Deadly Wandering. Hopefully, she'll live long enough to read it and to see what a great kid she's got. If you've got a question or a comment for us here at Positive Parenting, please do send it over. You can drop us a line through our website, mrdad.com. We'll be back next week with another Parents at Play segment or an Ask Mr. Dad segment, depending on which week it is, of course. But don't go quite yet because, as you know, there's a lot more Positive Parenting coming up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. everyone did this weekend. Jill? Well, I raised my older sister to a big oak tree. It was at least a hundred years old. My mom said I must have set a record or something. And then we went down by a stream and perched up on this huge rock and saw all of these little minnows swimming around way below us. And then I rescued my little brother from an evil slug king who was guarding him at the bush fortress. And my sister and I brought him back to our super twig for for safety. And then we all laid out and told stories until it got dark. And the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? Yeah. We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Anyone want to come this weekend? (laughs) Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week and find the fun, adventurous you. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. 
Elisha Cooper spends his mornings creating children's books and his afternoons playing with his two daughters. But when he discovers a lump in five-year-old Zoe's midsection as she sits in his lap in a Chicago Cubs game, everything changes. Surgery, sleepless nights, months of treatment, a drumbeat of worry. Even as the family moves to New York and Zoe starts kindergarten, they must navigate a new normal. School and soccer and hot chocolate at the local cafe, interrupted by anxious visits to the hospital. Elisha and his wife strive to help their daughter maintain a sense of stability and joy in their family life. And he tries to understand this new world, how it changes art and language and laughter as he holds on to the protective love he feels for his child. As a dad, Elisha is forced to balance his desires to be a protective parent, even as he encourages his girls to take risks, against the increasing helplessness he feels for his child's well-being and his own. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Elisha Cooper about what it took for him and his wife to preserve a sense of normalcy and joy in their daughter's lives and how the family emerged from this experience profoundly changed but healed as a whole. It all starts when Positive Parenting continues right after this. I don't recycle. I mean, we can just find another planet for your kids to live on, you know? Noted non-recycler Tommy Crenshaw talks about the future. Well, I can totally see finding another planet that can support life when ours fills up with trash. Log on to yougottobekidding.org and learn about all the ways you can recycle, unless you're into lame excuses like Tommy's. Hey, recycling's just not my thing. Starting over on a new planet? Now that's exciting. Don't be that guy, unless you want people looking at you funny. Log on to yougottobekidding.org. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Elisha Cooper, who's the author of Falling, A Daughter, A Father, and A Journey Back. Elisha, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I want you just to briefly set the stage here for us about what we're going to be talking about. The The, the short version is that you found a, a lump in your daughter's abdomen and... It went from yeah. there to a whole bunch of really scary stuff. But tell us the, the story of how that happened. Yeah, the, the short story is that I was taking my daughter Zoe to a baseball game at uh, Wrigley Field to a Cubs game. She loved the Cubs, and she's five, and she sat on my lap so she could see better, and I just kind of felt this odd lump in her side. And, yeah, it was kind of the start of everything changing because then – you know, we uh, we thought nothing of it for a couple of days, but we went to a doctor and then a you know got scans and yeah, it was a tumor. And so very quickly we were thrown into kind of cancer world where we were had surgery and or we she did have surgery and uh, uh, radiation and chemotherapy and it kind of turned everything upside down. So, you know, I got to say as I was reading the book, <clears throat> it got really difficult at certain parts because I have a daughter named Zoe also, oh, complete goodness. complete with the same uh, two dots over the E. Uh, right. which, which means is, life, though. Zoe means life. It does. It does. And her, her uh, Hebrew name is, is life also. But we had a, a medical issue with her, and it, it was in, in a way parallel in that I saw she had a, a neurological thing developing in one of her mm. legs, and I saw it. 
and then I didn't see it. And then I thought I saw it again, but I didn't see it. And and there was, and I'm kind of wondering, you know, is there a little bit of denial there? I mean, did you kind of, if you, if you think back to your mindset, did you think immediately, oh my God, this is a bad thing? Or did you Not just sort all. of get Not it out Not at all. Or like, oh, this is funny. What's this extra rib? Yeah. No. And I think that one of the things that I'm very aware of in talking about this book now is that um, these feelings or the, even the thing that I went through is kind of what all parents go through in that those little moments of worry and they're all linked. And this one happened to be worse, right? But it's like that kind of that little pit in the stomach moment is a universal thing to parenting. And I'd actually even argue to just being human, right? We, we, we feel worried for the people we love, but initially, yeah, there's a, there is denial. And then, and then everything gets kind of very serious, very fast. You, know, you didn't talk a lot about her reactions to this whole thing. It's, I mean, obviously, it's, it's written by you. It's much more of a first-person thing. But uh, at one point, you said she didn't. Cr- she doesn't cry. How did she yeah. handle getting all the poking and prodding and the tests and the needles and the the being in the CT scanners and I mean, right. it's just it's a lot well, of stuff to throw at a five-year-old. Oh my goodness! Yeah, but you know what's crazy is that Zoe is. And I, I, I don't mean to, well, I'm, I'm actually happy giving away the ending of the book. You know, she's going to high school next year. She's wonderful. She's strong. And she's still crazy strong. She just, she just came in third in New York in the eighth grade mile. She's just like this wow. star. You know, and I just, I mean, I'm, I think as you've read the book, you can tell I'm, I love her and I'm smitten with her. But she is a strong kid. And she was kind of strong then. You know, so she just kind of kind of a little stoic. She would just kind of go through it and go into the CT machine and just line or lie there perfectly and get poked by needles. And she never cried. She just was kind of tough. And I think actually a lot of little kids were that way. And the ones who I felt much more kind of I mean, I felt empathy towards everybody, but I felt like a particular empathy towards the teenagers because at the clinic, at the hospital, because they knew what was going on, whereas the little kids, the five-year-olds, were able to just kind of sometimes trot along, whereas the parents were, you know, the ones where they were kind of suffering because we knew what was up, right? We knew what right. was going on. Right. But it was the, the four-year-olds, the three-year-olds, they just were kind of bouncing along with attached to their IVs. I was always <laughs> impressed by, by yeah. the resiliency of these little kids and again it was the older kids that kind of fault in our stars teenager things who you just really felt for because they they oh they they understood in a way that Zoe never really did you know I mean later on as she started getting more scans she kind of understood and we would share things with her but early on she, she was just turned five so we told her everything but it wasn't but at a at a five or six year old level Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah, it doesn't doesn't mean the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of you know, as kind of putting myself in your shoes. Obviously, as I'm reading this, could because of the Zoe and because of the medical stuff. And I remember, you know, d- there were certain parts of of the thing where she got she got really scared at at various things. And there was one test yeah. in particular. She had to have this uh, electronic impulse test, which involved having oh, needles stuck in her oh, all over the place. How, and and how old was she then? She was about nine. Yeah, and well, that, she yeah, probably was able to 
to think about as a nine-year-old. She was. She was. And right. I, I remember doing things to try to help help her in, in, in a completely mm-hmm. silly way, looking back and saying to, you know, I said to the doctor, look, here's the thing. I want you to, you know, I'm going to sit next to her and I want you to stick some needles in my arm also oh my. and in my leg so that she can see that you can survive this thing. You're and, a great dad. And, well, I I was kind of wondering. I mean, it's not. This is not tooting my own horn, but I, I was where I'm going with this is wondering whether you know how you felt about this. What, you know, did you try somehow to? F- are, are there ways we can do something to to take away her her suffering? I wish I knew, and I'm. You know, I just wrote a book about it, so I should have like ideas. But I think that when anybody goes through something like this, it's devastating, and it's we kind of go through it alone. I mean, I remember moments of having to be in, you know, just holding her hand in the CAT scan room when I thought there was like a false positive and I felt completely alone. I don't know, you know, some people, a lot of people talk about, you know, fighting cancer and being strong and doing certain things, right. cut, just cutting your head. And, and you know what, I, for me, it came down to, well, always being there for her, right? But being a witness was very difficult. So for me, it, came down to finding things like humor or art or family mm-hmm. to get through it. And I, but I, I kind of, I'm very aware now that everybody is different and some people need their faith and some people need food and some people need family and sure. ours and some people fight. But I, I'm very almost hesitant to say this is what worked for me because my goodness, when we, when we kind of go through this type of worry for somebody else, we're very alone. And right. And maybe that's why we reach out to people. And maybe that's why I wrote about it. I think that's what, why I wrote this Probably, book. Yeah. I wrote Falling yeah. was to think about, to think about these issues. Yeah. No, but what I, what I, 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 don't, I don't, I almost don't have advice. No, no. What I, 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 I wasn't actually looking for advice. I was kind of wondering whether yeah. you had a, mm. a, a, a feeling of helplessness that you couldn't do anything, Complete. that there was nothing you could do, no matter nothing. what you tried, there was zero that you could do. I think that's that helplessness is, is something I keep on returning to. And I, I realize that when I've been, you know, doing readings for this book and talking about it. And as I kind of re, even reread what I wrote, what I'm kind of more aware is that there were so many things in my life that I controlled from writing children's books to playing a lot of sports. I played a lot of ultimate Frisbee right about this time. And, you know, I could control my body and I could control drawing a farm and I could control my relationships and here was something I had absolutely no control over none and it kind of floored me right because I wanted to I wanted to be you know the father who could save her and and I couldn't I really couldn't I just could I just kind of held her hand and smiled and tried to make our life as normal as possible yeah and that really hits at the core of what fatherhood or motherhood or any kind of parenthood or caregiving for them. You're supposed to be the the one who can do these things. And right. damn it, you can't sometimes. Yeah, right, right. I know. I, it was, it's a terrible feeling. And I think I was also very aware that, I mean, Zoe was lucky. You know, her biology was such that she got through this. But there were other parents and other children at the hospital who were not so lucky who you know the kids died and i've always been very aware that how horrible would that feel to feel like you couldn't control that as a parent i I just can't even i can't even go there talking with elisha cooper who's the author of falling a daughter a father and a journey back we're going to take a quick break when we come back we'll keep talking to elisha 
Excuse me, do you know how to get to Maine and Maple? How's that cook? How do you change the ringtone? How much does this cost? Does this bus stop at Elm Street? We ask questions everywhere in life, except... Any questions? Um, no. At the doctor's office, ask questions. What is this test for? Are there any side effects? Questions lead to better health care. Go to ahrq.gov for a list of 10 questions everyone should know. Questions are the answer. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brott. If you're just joining us, talking with Elisha Cooper, who's the author of Falling, A Daughter, A Father, and a Journey Back. Elisha, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your relationship uh, with your with your wife as yeah. this as this went on. And I, I was kind of also as I'm reading the book, you're thinking about a lot of stuff. And I thought about, for some reason, the movie Lorenzo's Oil. I don't know if you ever saw that. Mm, uh, no. Nick Nolte and Susan Sarandon, I think, are have right, the, right. the parents of this kid who gets very sick. And a lot of the the movies about their relationship and, and the kind of, th- there was nothing that they could have done. But, mm. you know, a blaming of whatever it was on each other, you know, that, that this is your tainted blood or something. Did Did you right. ever have any any kind of, Want lashing out because you do talk. We'll talk about that later. But you do talk about some, yeah. some in in a way irrational lashing out at people. Uh, Definitely. Did you did but, you do that with your wife? But never with Elise. I mean, I think, and that could just, you know, we're pretty close. We always were close, and we're still close. And I and I, I, I did include an essay in the book talking about us, but it was more about just kind of us aging together. And I. I mean, I don't know what would have happened had things not turned out well, but I just think in a way that in that essay, there wasn't so much of an arc because Elise and I were close and then we stayed close. You know, I don't I don't know if it I don't know if it changed us. I mean, also, she's a psychologist and a scientist, and she would say there's no way to test that. You know, there's no in other words, the sample size is too small to say what if it would change us. But I feel that she I mean, she's wonderful and we kind of stood back to back on this and tried to stare it down. But again, I don't know what would have happened had Zoe not lived. Yeah. And what about your other daughter? She's younger, right? Yeah. Mia is hilarious. And she's actually kind of um, the one who would ask questions about things. But she's she's a couple years younger than Zoe. And um, she, she was just kind of great, too. She would just kind of show up and jump up on the table at the at the oncology clinic. And um, one of the things that I did with this book, I hope, is kind of protect them. I don't talk too much about them. But also, you know, they were kind of great. They were strong throughout this thing. I don't, so I wasn't totally protecting them. I'm just kind of telling the truth of what they were, both Mia and Zoe and yeah. and Elise. They were, well, they were kind of great. I, I think I was the one who was you know, on the face of it, I think I probably looked great, too. But inside, <laughs> I just was, you know, you're just talking about me, uh, at times I lost my temper and it happened often. And, you know, it, there were times where I just was so furious. And because of this loss of control or inability to save my child. Right. I felt like I was kind of knocked by this maybe. I don't know. I want to say worse, but I just I really felt this really just kicked me hard. 
you know, it seemed like there was a theme in a way, but there there was a couple of themes. There's the, the losing control kind of thing you just mentioned. But then there's also this people saying, oh, she could get hurt. And you're responding to that in, in a way. And I wonder what, what you were thinking about. Some, sometimes you almost said it and sometimes you did. But basically, you know, what, what do you mean she could get hurt falling off a couch? Do you have any idea what that is in compared to what she's already going through? Right. There was this one moment where uh, a doctor at the clinic was it's saying I should take her off of a couch because it was dangerous. And I wanted to say, look, cancer is dangerous. And I think it it speaks to I kind of got a little feral, a little like a kind of a protective bear during this time. And when people would try to kind of tell me about how to parent her in maybe other ways, I just would kind of lash out. And I also would lash out because I, I felt like, okay, here's this serious thing, cancer. You know, her getting a, a, a little scraped knee here and there is not that important. So I would see kind of like the small worries that, well, all parents have, and maybe they're okay, but I would say, come on, you know, there are bigger worries than that. And I kind of wanted my girls to be strong and seize the world. And certainly in those moments, I didn't want to be told what to do. But that may have been because I was, again, in this kind of space where everything made me upset. You know, and so that could have just been both me wanting the girls to take risks, but also just me being really kind of overly sensitive. And that was something I had to kind of write my way out of, I think. Do you think that you were a little lax with the girls in a way to kind of compensate for feelings of, boy, I don't know how long she will have her in our lives and let her do whatever she wants to do? I think I've always been that way as a parent. Um, so no, no, I think I was, I think I was lax just because I kind of, I grew up on a farm and I always wanted them to be climbing trees and doing kind of dangerous stuff. And I kind of, I, I uh, no, I think that was just me. And actually, the, one of the kind of the weird things that I, I often kind of played with when in writing this is like, how much was this the cancer, or how much of this was like me being just an angry New Yorker. Or was this being me being a permissive father or was this me worrying about cancer? And so it, it's kind of like the it was hard to tease those things apart. Which was it? A little combination of both? Probably. I don't know. And did your younger daughter at some point, this has gone on for quite a while now, or had, at least it started when she was five. And so your daughter's, I guess, about 14 or so. Yep, she's, her 14th birthday is tomorrow. Huh, congratulations. So. Yeah. So Mia is the younger one. Did she yes. at at any point in there start thinking, I wish people would pay attention to me like they're paying attention to Zoe? <laughs> I think so. But, you know, I, the kind of the dynamic that's now in the family is that Mia is this incredible dancer. And she's in the Nutcracker here in New York at the, you know, the main Nutcracker. And she is in other shows at New York City Ballet. And so she gets a lot of attention <laughs> by being a ballet dancer. And Zoe's like, Oh, come on, too much ballet. So they each kind of get their own attention, Zoe through running and Mia through dancing. And I think they actually, they're they're competitive with each other in that kind of healthy sisterly way where they sometimes can't stand each other. And it's often about things like ballet or or running. And But I think they're, I think they're okay with it. In other words, I think Mia is okay with Zoe getting attention. <laughs> and, and the other way around, apparently. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So what did you learn from all this? Oh, my goodness. I, 
I wish I could come up with one soundbite. And in some ways, I think I wrote this book to kind of figure that out. And, and again, one of the things I'm hesitant about is like, I don't know if I could say, here's this one thing I learned, because I think that what I learned is different from what other people learned. And I realized that when you kind of see your child in trouble like this and go through it, everybody's path is different. And I'm very kind of aware of that. But I would say what I learned was that there were certain things that I could do to kind of get myself out of it. Like, I, I think the, there's that great line in the Hamilton, which my girls love right now, where he talks about he wrote his way out. And I felt that by using words and writing these essays, I was able to think about why these things upset me or why they made me scared or thinking about risk or thinking about again, humor, which, you know, I, I kept on in these years doing all these kind of crazy, silly things. Why was I doing that? I think sometimes we laugh when we're scared, right? Yeah. And so if I, there's something I learned, I don't know, not one thing. But again, it was things like, how does humor save us? Or how mm-hmm. does art save us? Or how does family or your wife or husband or anything? There, and anybody, there are things that save all of us. And maybe that's what I've learned. And that you can, people can find those. And then you can initially be really upset because it's this is upsetting. This is upsetting stuff Absolutely. to have yeah. to have your and it's okay to be angry and it's okay to be upset. And then you get through it. I think that's it. Is that you know? And this was like years of being upset and then years of figuring that out. Do you still think about it? I worry that I, there's going to be something will pop up. I mean, it's been obviously quite a few years since she's been no, cancer free. Yeah, yeah, I mean, she doesn't she doesn't even go back to the doctor you know she doesn't go back for tests it was five years of tests and now she doesn't even go back she goes back and has like once a year we'll go and gossip with dr lee i mean in some ways this book is kind of a a love letter to the doctors who took (laughs) care of her yeah um but i don't i mean i i think about i don't think her her you know her chances of getting cancer again are back to close to what the regular population is i i worry about her less. I worry about about her always, like any father. You know, I I worry that she'll, you know, break a leg. But that's that would be okay. If she breaks a leg, that's fine. It's one of the things I write about. You know, in other words, there there are breaks that our children have, and they'll be okay. But I think this kind of the real deep worry about cancer has. Uh, Largely faded, but that might be just because I'm old and forgetful. <laughs> Elisha Cooper, who is not at all old and forgetful, is the author of Falling, A Daughter, A Father, and A Journey Back. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.